Well, today we come to Romans chapter 6. Not just any chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 6. It's an amazing chapter in which Paul now details for us God's plan and expectation for our spiritual growth. There's no such thing as a true Christian in the Bible who is not growing and changing and maturing as a Christian. Being a Christian is not just a state of being, but a way of living. Our goal isn't just to be a follower of Christ, but to actually live like Christ, to actually follow him. Paul's letter to the Romans has been teaching some amazing, deep, and powerful truth. Romans 6 now starts this third major section of the letter. Remember this outline that I showed at the beginning of our sermon series um, on the screen there behind me. So you can see the progression that we're working through. The first three chapters, we saw that universal reality of sin for all of mankind, for me and you, for everyone. Sin is condemned. Salvation is needed. Righteousness is required. Then in that second part, the end of chapter 3 through chapter 5, we saw the way of salvation, that sin is atoned for, that salvation is explained, that God's righteousness is credited, imputed to us. Justification is by faith alone. Some amazing, important truth. So now as we enter this third major section, we see Paul sequentially moving along to the application of salvation, to the life a saved person lives. The life a saved person lived is called sanctification. It's God's power working in us to conform us to the image of his son. It is living out in our daily lives the righteousness that has been credited to us. It's growing and changing and obeying. It is trust in action. Romans 6 now takes all that we have learned and starts to put legs on it. Faith is not the end goal. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, Faith alone saves, but faith is never alone. So what comes with faith? Change and obedience and dying to self and living for Christ and setting our minds on things above, putting off the old man and renewing our minds, putting on the new man, having the Holy Spirit develop his fruit within us, and on and on and on. Romans 6 details for us this process of change, the process of sanctification, to know, reckon, yield, and obey. Know is in verses 1 through 10. Reckon is in verse 11. Yield is in verses 12 through 14. And obey is in verses 15 to 23. There are facts that we need to know. And those facts lay the groundwork for our action. Then those facts need to go from facts to beliefs. To things that we reckon as true in our lives. To reckon means to to put on one's account, to account, to consider. It simply means to believe what God says in his word is really true in our lives. First, we know the fact. Then we reckon, we count on what we know as truth to be true in our lives. Then we yield. We present ourselves to God, giving him the right of way. And then we obey, obedience from the heart to God, our master. 
over and over and over again, hundreds and thousands of times in our Christian life, we have gone down this Romans road of sanctification in Romans 6. Well, please take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans chapter 6 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. The scripture says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Father, now what a privilege we have to have read your scriptures, this amazing passage, this Romans 6. We pray, Holy Spirit, that what you have given to us, you will now enliven in us and teach us, comfort us and challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing you notice as you come to Romans chapter 6 It starts with a question. So it makes us look back at Romans chapter 5. And and we remember how in Romans 5, Paul brings to this great crescendo the truth of the superlative reality of Christ over sin. Christ over death. Sin came. Condemnation resulted. Death reigned. But oh, how so much more Christ came. And The free gift brought justification and grace reigned and eternal life resulted. There is no way for the reign of sin and death to win. It was crushed by Christ. God's grace is so much more powerful than sin and death. It's not an evenly matched battle. The comparison is that there is no comparison. There is so much more grace in Jesus than there is sin in this world. There is so much more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you and me. Jesus has won complete and total victory. Chapter 5 ends saying, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're a follower of Christ here today, some of the sweetest words 
that your ears have ever heard, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. Oh, the amazing, wonderful, marvelous grace of God. Paul has taught this material over and over and over again in church after church. And he knows an objection that is coming to the mind of some of the people. Well, if it's all about Christ and grace, if grace abounded all the more, if it's all about eternal life and salvation, if, if sin is so powerfully and bountifully conquered by Christ, doesn't it make sense that it's okay to sin? I mean, if sin shows the power and grace of God, then shouldn't we sin to show even more the power and grace of God? Isn't God showing his power and grace a good thing? So doesn't that mean that since my sin shows God's power and grace, that it's a good thing? Well, this charge actually comes from two different angles. One is from the person who wants to justify their sin. They're trying to use God's grace to fulfill their own selfishness. This attitude of using God's grace as a pretense to get what you want has been a problem from the very beginning. In this small New Testament book of Jude, Jude writes about it. Jude writes about people with this attitude in Jude verse 4. And he says, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So what were they saying? These people in the church... That the marvelous grace of God allows them to live immoral lives. Oh, if God is so loving, if God is so gracious, he's so forgiving, then he wants me to fulfill my wants and desires. God's like an old grandpa on a porch swing, just letting the children run and do whatever they want to do. There's nothing right or wrong. Just do whatever feels right to you. Do whatever you want. Oh, the only law that God wants me to follow is to do whatever feels right to me. This view of God and his grace permeates our society. And it seeps even into the church. It's amazing how even us, we see how false that is, and yet we twist the truth ourselves to service what we want. Today, even in the church, you might hear people say to justify their actions, well, it's God's job to forgive. I mean, he is a forgiving God. He's going to forgive me anyway, so I can go ahead and do what I want. You see, people around us sometimes who are just apathetic about their disobedience to God. Oh, I can't change. I, I'm just who I am. You know, that's just the way I talk. That's just the way I handle things. And they become apathetic to their disobedience to God. We see people who emphasize the love of God while de-emphasizing the justice or holiness of God. Responsibility and accountability and judgment and righteousness are all just kind of pushed aside and shoved under the blanket, squashed down. Don't look at that. Don't look at that. Oh, see, it's not just a problem out there. 
It's amazing how we can twist the truth to service grace to give us what we want. The first group of sin excusers see God's abounding grace as a license to do whatever they want. Paul soundly confronts this error. May it never be. The second group that raises this the same question, but from a totally opposite side of the continuum. They're accusing Paul of cheapening God's grace, of making it too easy. For them, grace only abounds over sin if you deserve it, if you earn it. If justification is by grace through faith alone, if you don't have to earn it by your actions, then what's to keep you from doing the right thing or not doing the wrong thing? They argue there has to be rules. There has to be religious hoops that we set up that you have to jump through. There has to be these religious laws and this list to follow. If you follow the list, you're good. If you don't follow the list, you're bad. And of course, they're the ones that compose the list. They say salvation just can't be by grace through faith alone. You have to earn it. You have to follow our list. This was the prevailing view of the religious Jews in Jesus' day, the the Pharisees in the first century. This is one of the main issues that Paul addresses over and over and over again in his letters to the religious Jews who were becoming uh, to faith in Christ. They would falsely think it, it just can't be Christ alone. They would say, you have to add the Old Testament to it too. You have to add those laws too. Paul regularly in his letters kept pointing out, oh no, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. This was one of the charges that was leveled against Martin Luther and, and others in the Protestant Reformation. The medieval Catholic Church accused the Reformers of overstressing God's grace, of overstepping and saying that justification is by grace through faith alone. If justification is by grace through faith alone, they would say, if you don't have to earn it by your actions, then what's going to keep you from doing the right thing? There has to be rules. There has to be religious hoops to jump through. There has to be laws to follow. It can't be Christ alone. They said, you have to follow the rules of the church. We see on one side is licentiousness. God's abounding grace gives me a license to sin and selfishness. And on the other side is legalism. God's abounding grace must be curbed by adding a list, our approved list of actions. The Bible says both views are wrong. Both are wrong. Both miss the truth. One commentator wrote, about Romans 6 saying, Paul deals a death blow to the view that God's grace is a license to sin. Yet he does so with, <coughs> excuse me, without yielding an inch to those who would deny that God's grace alone is sufficient for salvation. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the apostle avoided the extreme of legalism on the one hand and libertinism on the other. He would neither abandon God's grace to accommodate the legalists, nor abandon God's righteousness to accommodate the libertines. Such 
is the balance, the truth of God's word. It is God's abounding grace through Jesus Christ that overcomes our sin and offers us eternal life. And it is God's abounding grace through Jesus Christ that is our motivation, is our energy to overcome the sinful tendencies in our lives and to bring us abundant life. Paul, in his letter to Titus, summarizes this very well. He says to Titus, in Titus 2, 11 through 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. What's training us? The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So as a question comes to the libertine or to the legalist, what shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul unequivocally answers by no means. It's important to note a word here in this first verse. It's the word continue. That word continue in the first verse has the idea of habitual persistence, not occasional weakness. Paul's not speaking of believers occasionally falling into sin, as every believer does, as all of us do much more often than we would even care to admit. What he's talking about here is the intentional, willful sinning as a pattern of life. Through true followers of Christ, continue to sin. We all do. For the Bible talks about this reality over and over again. And Paul will talk about his own battle. In the next chapter here, in Romans chapter 7, though true followers of Christ continue to sin... We, through Christ and because of Christ, have the opportunity, have the ability, have the responsibility to choose not to sin. There's an inseparable connection between justification and sanctification, between salvation and spiritual growth, between conversion and change, between being saved by the grace of God and living for the glory of God. Can a person receive new life? and yet continue in his old way without any change? Does the divine transaction of redemption have no continuing, sustaining power? Can justification truly be totally separated from sanctification? Well, no, of course not. Salvation is not just a transaction. It's a transformation. Well, Paul responds to the accusation of verse 1 with an emphatic, clear answer in verse 2. The strongest language possible, Paul states, may it never be. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not. Never. God forbid. Certainly not. It's totally unthinkable. Paul's expressing outrage at the thought that anyone could even conceive it. As true. 
Why? Why is seeing God's grace as license allowing you to sin so wrong? Because it's a fundamental denial of who we are as Christians. It's a fundamental denial of who Christ is. It's a fundamental denial of what Christ has done in us and for us and is doing. Look at verse 2 at Paul's answer to the accusation. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The logic's pretty simple to understand. How can something that's dead still live? Right? Dead things are dead. It's impossible for dead things to still be living. So as believers, since we've died to sin, how can we still live in it? It doesn't make any logical sense to continue to live under the power of sin and yet have died to sin. The Christian who is alive in Christ has died to sin. It's in the past tense. It has happened. It's a done deal. It is inconceivable and self-contradictory to think that a believer can live in the sin from which he has been delivered from by death. Because dead things don't keep living. We are dead to sin. So it makes no sense to live in sin. So how did we die to sin? When did we die to sin? Paul now gives three arguments in defense of his answer. His three arguments are arranged in this passage as the three things that we're supposed to know. Three facts for every believer in Christ. That word know is in verse 3 and in verse 6 and in verse 9. So the first fact we are to know is that we are dead to sin because we are united with Christ in verses 3 and 4. We are united with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. What happened to Christ happened to us. Just like Paul argued in chapter 5 about what happened to Adam happened to us. Here he uses a picture of baptism. This word baptism has two meanings. One is the literal meaning to immerse, and it speaks of water baptism. The other is a more symbolic meaning to identify with or to be united with. Water baptism is the act of being immersed in water, but its significance is symbolic in showing who you've identified with, who you've united with. Water baptism is the expression of an obedient heart that is already in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Water baptism is a picture of our unity with Christ in all the ways that we are already unified with him. Water baptism is a symbolic expression of our real identification with Christ. We are immersed into Christ. He identified with us. And in water baptism, we publicly identify with him. Now, Romans 6 is using that term baptism to describe how all true followers of Christ are united, connected, identified with Christ. We see that even detailed in verses 5 and 6. But in Romans 3 and 4 is where we get the picture for our baptism. 
as a person goes backwards under the water, we're picturing them being buried with Christ by baptism into his death. As the scripture says, as we raised a person out of the water, we are picturing them being raised from the dead with Christ, because of Christ, to walk in newness of life. As believers, we are so united with what Jesus did on the cross, with what he did in his death and in his resurrection. It is as if we were there. When Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. We're so connected to what he accomplished there. It's as if it happened to us. That's why Paul is using this physical analogy of water baptism to teach the spiritual reality of how all believers are connected, united, in union, identified with Jesus Christ. We are united with the historical fact of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, with Christ as our representative, and through the divine work of the Holy Spirit. One wrote, There can be no participation in Christ's life without a participation in his death. And we cannot enjoy the benefits of his death unless we're partakers of the power of his life. We must be reconciled to God in order to be holy, and we cannot be reconciled without thereby becoming holy. The fact of our identification with Christ changes everything about us, our present life, our future hope. Because of Christ, we are saved. Because of Christ, we are being made more holy. We are in the process of sanctification. And because of Christ, we have the blessed hope of eternal life. Facts impact Reality, the power of sin is broken because we are united with Christ. The second fact we are to know is that we are dead to sin because our old self was crucified with Christ in verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ, breaking the bonds of our enslavement to sin. We are so united with Christ and his crucifixion that our old self, our in Adam self, has been dealt a mortal wound. The phrase brought to nothing doesn't mean annihilated. Some translate the word as destroyed or done away with. But the force of the word doesn't mean ending as in eliminated, but ending as in rendering inoperative, as invalid, as ineffective, as powerless. Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the, pow- the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Folks, we have more power over sin than sin has over us because of the death of our Savior has set us free from enslavement to sin. All believers are no longer enslaved to sin. We once all were, like all people are. But now, because of being united with Christ, the slavery to sin has been broken. Verse 7 says, For the one who has died in Christ, being united with Christ, the one whose old self has been crucified with Christ, the one who has died has been set free 
from sin. Free, the Bible says, from sin. The power of sin is broken because our old self was crucified with Christ, rendering it powerless. The last thing we know from our passage today is from verse 9. We are dead to sin because Jesus died to sin and lives to God. Jesus conquered death and sin through his death and resurrection. The death he died broke the power of sin, just as the resurrection broke the power of death. The point is that because we have died and been raised with Christ, we too shall never die. The sin that made us subject to death is no longer master over us, just as it's no longer master over Jesus. Death will never be our executioner. Because of Christ, we shall never perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 Verse 10 says that Christ died to sin. He died paying the penalty of our sin, taking upon himself the sins of the world, taking on God's wrath, paying sin's price. Christ died to sin. And he died to the power of sin, forever breaking the power of sin over those who belong to God through faith. There's a verse in the great hymn, uh, O for a thousand tongues to sing, that says, He, Jesus, breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the fowls clean. His blood availed for me. The fact is that Jesus has broken the power of our canceled, forgiven sin. He has set us free from the enslavement to our sins. These three verses... With these three things we know are facts for us as believers. So think about this truth with me. All believers are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection weren't just what Jesus did for me, but what he did to me. Jesus' death and resurrection weren't just what he did for me, but what he did to me. Remember how... Paul puts this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are so united with Christ and his death and resurrection that it's as if we were there in the very acts of his death and resurrection. What Jesus did was so powerful, so amazing, so life-changing, so transformational that our salvation... We no longer live. No, at our salvation, Christ lives in us. And by the virtue and power of Christ living in us, his victory is our victory. His conquering death is our conquering death. His breaking the power of the enslavement of sin is our breaking the power of enslavement of sin. His resurrection is our resurrection to new life. So often in life, you feel defeated. You feel powerless, feel overcome. Since we are united with him in his power over sin, in his victory over death, and since his resurrection has given us new life, we already have all that we could ever need to live a godly life, to pursue holiness, to progress in our sanctification, to live by faith, 
Beloved, you already have it. We already have it in Christ. Because of Christ. Do you have the spiritual energy to have a growing, dynamic life in Christ? Yes, you do. Do you have the spiritual power to live a life conquering sin? Yes, you do. Do you have the spiritual momentum in your life to live a life that pleases God? Yes, you do. We do. We have it because we've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We have it because he has it. And we've been united with him. So Paul has proven his answer to his accusers, proven the fact that we are dead to sin. So since we are dead to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Now, we don't normally talk about sin that way, do we? We don't normally talk about being dead to sin. We talk about our sin being forgiven. We talk about our sin being cleansed. We talk about stopping sin. We talk about changing our sinful actions. But we rarely talk about the fact that we're dead to sin. Sin for all of us and all of our life experiences seems very much alive. So what does being dead to sin actually look like in our real everyday lives? First, dead to sin doesn't mean sinless perfection. Of course, obviously, the Bible doesn't teach such things. But rather over and over again, it talks about putting off the old man, about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, about not gratifying the desires of the body, and on and on and on and on. Second, we know that dead to sin doesn't mean that our old self, our old sinful habits, our flesh is eradicated or eliminated. Passage after passage talks about our continued struggle with sin. As Paul will talk about in the very next chapter here in Romans. James 1.14 talks about how we are tempted, saying each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Our own desires within us lure us and entice us away from obedience to Christ. So, since sin is still alive in us, how are we dead to it? One wrote, Paul makes it very clear that the old man still has residual effect in our lives. And Christians, in fact, continue to sin. How then can we say that we are dead to sin and that we are now freed from sin? We are freed from the dominion of sin in our lives. We still sin, and we still sin willfully, but a Christian can never say that he had to sin. God has said that every time we face temptation, he has given us a way of escape. We can't say, oh, the devil made me do it. We can't say, my fallen nature made me do it. We may surrender to the lust of our fallen nature, but we do have the power within us to resist. How are we dead to sin? We're dead to the power of sin. We're dead to the dominion of sin. We're dead to the slavery of sin. We've been set free from the power of sin in our lives. Now picture yourself at a fork in the road. And not like Yogi Berra who said, when you see a fork in the road, take it. Here you are the fork in the road and you got two choices in front of you. You're facing this alluring temptation. Maybe one that 
has beaten you down so many times before, or you're facing this interpersonal relationship problem that continually brings out the worst in you. Now, do you believe that that person or that temptation has power over you? Do you believe that since you've fallen so many times in such similar circumstances that it's just going to happen again and there's nothing you can do about it? Or are you going to tell yourself the truth? Or will you tell yourself what you know to be true? I know that I'm united with Christ and the power of sin has been broken in my life. I know that Jesus conquered sin. He rose again in victory and I know I can walk with him in newness of life. I know that my old self was crucified with Christ. I know I still struggle with sin. I know it's a still challenge, but I've been set free from the dominion and power of sin. I can choose to be obedient to God. I know Facts. It's amazing what can change in our lives when we know the truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Challenge from your word the power of the truth of your word. It challenges us. It awakens within us a new and, and, and inflamed desire to walk in newness of life, to say no to that sin in our lives, to realize what Jesus has done for us and being united with him. It, it, it awakens within us a new understanding and resolve to obey and to trust to walk by faith. Lord, we pray today as we leave here, you'll challenge us to know the truth, to live it, to live for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.